usually how I like to start these conversations is really talk about the individual's journey. When I get to talk to people, thankfully, they're working on something pretty incredible and pretty amazing that that's going to have, you know, lasting impact for a very long time in, in the sector that they're in. So I want to start a little bit with your educational journey, because I don't think many people have gone to Cornell, Cambridge, Imperial College of London and Harvard University. So I kind of want to go through your sort of educational history and how that sort of set stage uh, for COBOL. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Grant. I think just being a scientific generalist and intellectual curiosity have been big themes. And I'm really excited to be working on really challenging scientific and data problems in, in what are now a, a, a recently even a new discipline for me. I've always been interested in, in physics and the fundamental processes that govern the workings of the universe. And most of my education was really focused around that. And my, my doctorate was in quantum computing, field of experimental atomic physics, and trying to adapt a system that's used for really exquisitely precise measurements and repurpose it for quantum computing and storing quantum information. And when I say exquisitely precise, I mean that my colleagues in my laboratory published a, a measurement of the fundamental magnetic properties of the electron to the 13th decimal place. And there's all kinds of interesting reasons we can talk about uh, in another conversation for why one would do that. <laughs> and, and prior to that, I had worked in, in physics through my academic career with a slight divergence into history of science and wrote a, an under, a master's thesis on the, his, on the physicist Paul Dirac and his prediction of the positron, the first particle of antimatter, and just trying to understand how, how modern theoretical physics came to be and how we understood the fundamental composition of the world. And I think you'll find what's a common, a common view among, among many of my colleagues at Cobalt actually is that thinking about fundamental scientific questions is really valuable across disciplines. And we bring some of that thinking to, to the mineral exploration business and to geoscience as well. And so we have, we have scientists with very different perspectives on looking at data, looking at scientific problems at Cobalt. And, uh, and physics has just been one of, one of many possible great trainings for doing so. And as I finished my, my graduate studies, in physics, I was working on really fundamental questions and quantum computing is a, is a really challenging problem and obviously one that's gotten a lot of attention recently, but still one that is in many years of, of technology development are going to be required to use quantum computers for practical computations. The promise is incredible, but it's a really long-term problem and most scientists work on it because they're interested in the scientific questions. They're interested in ultimately building these devices that will take many years to work. And I was interested, I was interested in using science and technology on a shorter time scale. And I was really just motivated by, by the fact that climate change is such an urgent problem and requires people of many disciplines to work on many facets of that problem. And I wanted to pursue something at the intersection of science and technology and ultimately geopolitics and, and urgent social problems. Yeah, it's a it's a an entirely, I think, different world for, for most of us that maybe don't know how things work, right? On a day or, or how things get to where they are. And you know what's interesting about 
the, the world today is that everything's moves very, very fast as far as products being built and sort of the innovation from one phone to the next, from one car, you know, we had Tesla, now we have a dozen electric car companies, probably a dozen more will will SPAC next next year or something like that, right? I mean, there's so much innovation within the EV space and, and even the phone space, right? And mobile devices and all these electric devices. But you know, the big thing they need is is is, is batteries, right? And we have to get those from somewhere. So talk about at, at a real foundational level what cobalt does and and, and maybe why it, it can be very effective uh, for the new world that we're approaching. Absolutely. You're exactly right, Grant, that batteries underpin many of the devices that are important to modern life and will be over the coming decades as well. And of course, that includes mobile devices, laptop computers, phones, tablets, and increasingly electric vehicles, which have something like a thousand times as much metal in the battery compared to a mobile phone. And we obviously, one really important, important factor for avoiding the catastrophic impacts of climate change is electrifying personal transportation. It's not enough, but if we can't do that, then many of the other levers we need to pull to uh, to reduce carbon emissions are are much harder than that. (laughs) So electrifying the vehicle fleet is one critical component. And in order to do that, we're going to need a lot of raw materials to actually manufacture these vehicles. And just to put some numbers around that, to electrify the entire light-duty vehicle fleet worldwide by mid-century, it requires all of the world's resources of copper, cobalt, nickel, and lithium, and an additional $5 trillion worth of those materials. And that is accounting for the fact that we also use nickel and and copper for other things besides electric vehicles. We're going to continue to need we're going to continue to need different steel alloys. We're going to continue to need power lines and all sorts of other uses for these for these metals. An incremental five trillion dollars worth of these resources. We actually have to go find them, and that's a really hard technical problem. We're talking about ore deposits that you know we're talking about unusual anomalies of these concentrations of metals in the earth's crust. You know, there's, you've got cobalt and nickel and copper in the dirt in your garden, but at very low concentrations, a handful of parts per million. You can't mine that, you can't economically turn that into batteries. You have to find the places where nature has done the concentrating already. And you have to be able to detect, to, to detect those with data that you can go out and collect. And the, you know, the fundamental principle here is that the easy deposits have been found. And humanity has been walking the earth mm-hmm. and, and noticing unusually colored rocks for hundreds and thousands of years. <laughs> Copper is an example. Copper sulfide minerals, when they're exposed to surface waters and air, they weather to malachite, which is this beautiful blue mineral. And humans have noticed that for thousands of years and, and have figured out ways to, to process those copper oxides and turn them into copper metal and start to make tools out of them. These things have been happening for a very long time. And those are the ore deposits where the, the concentration of metals, the, the metal ores are exposed at the surface. And by now, humanity's found all of those. And so what we're looking for today are ore deposits that are covered. They're concealed not just by soils, but by other layers of rock. And you have to be able to see through those deeper into the crust to be able to detect the ore deposits that are going to provide all these raw materials that we need. And that's a that's a really challenging technical problem. And we need to be able to, we need to be able to find them. 
We need to be able to ultimately make money by finding and mining those resources. And we have to continue to do so in a, in a responsible way because we're not, we don't want to trade the problems of carbon right. emissions for other problems associated with natural resource development. And there are pretty significant trade-offs involved and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a very challenging problem and that's what we're here to tackle. Can you talk a little bit about like why sort of cobalt is different, right? What is going to be different about how it's done now and how it's going to be done in, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, the next 50 years? Yeah, let me tell you, let me start by telling you what happens before you can mine something. Okay. The, you have to find process, it, right? You got to find it. Yeah, yeah that, you have to find it. And, and the process of coming up with an idea and taking it all the way through to actually putting a mine into operation takes many years. And if, if you can do it in, in five to seven years, you're going at breakneck speed. And in many cases, it takes 10 to 20 years to go from concept to mine, or even from discovery to mine. You have to come up with an idea of where you want to look, and then you have to go out and acquire the rights to explore. And sometimes that's as simple as staking a claim if, if the land is available and no one else has claimed it. And it's interesting in, in the United States, the way that you stake a mining claim is by going out and pounding stakes into the ground on the corners of your mining claim. This is on US federal lands, Bureau of Land Management managed lands. Uh, and in some places you can stake claims by, by working with a web application, but you have to secure the rights to conduct exploration on the land. And then you have to go out and collect data on the areas that you think are really interesting. And so that means geoscientists going out and collecting rock samples and sending them to the lab to assay them, mapping the rocks that they see at surface and interpre interpreting the geology in between where they can see the rocks. It means collecting geophysical data, either on the ground or in airborne surveys. And then so interpreting. A, very ma a manual process, it feels like. Uh, there are some things that are very manual. I mean, if you want to actually walk the ground and, and traverse the rocks and, and sample them, uh, you know, it's it's not a robot going out and <laughs> swinging a rock hammer. It's a it's a geologist doing that. And there are there are many things about it that are automated. There's uh, there's obviously a lot of data that gets collected from an airborne geophysical survey, but one has to go look at that data and do a whole bunch of processing in order to produce a data set that's that that you can work on and make and and really interpret. You collect that data and form a view of what's under the surface that you, that you can't see from, uh, from walking across the ground. Then you have to go refine your view of the subsurface and usually go collect more data based on what you've interpreted already. And then when you have enough confidence that you, you have a, a target, a, a place where there is likely to be ore minerals in the ground, then you go out and drill a hole. And usually that means you're actually drilling out a core, you, you take a plug of rock out of the ground and take it up to the surface where you can look at it. And then you also send it to a lab and assay it and see how much gotcha. cobalt and copper and nickel and copper is in it. Even if you make a discovery, you drill one hole that has a high concentration of one of the commodities you're interested in. You don't know yet whether or not you've got an ore deposit that you can mine. Mm -hmm. You, it might be a it might be a pancake that's a kilometer wide and 20 meters thick and you drilled right through the middle of it, or it might be a tiny little body. It might have a couple of veins going through it and you have no idea whether it's a big vein swarm that has a lot, uh, a lot of, of the right mineralization or whether it's a few isolated veins. 
and you have to drill more holes mm. and statistically correlate them and build a probabilistic model of what's in the subsurface. And then you have to think about how you're going to get this out of the ground, how you're going to separate the metals from the ore, how you're going to get the reagents in and the products out to market, because these are often in very remote locations. There may or may not be any infrastructure anywhere nearby. And you have to do all of this while you are building and maintaining the support of the community where you operate, mm -hmm. understanding the ecosystem where this thing is located, and putting together a good baseline study and an understanding of what environmental impacts you're going to have. And you have to do all of this in a way that manages the risk associated with the capital you're deploying and a plan to build a mine that's actually going to make a return for the investors who put the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars into building it. So all of that has to happen before you actually build a mine. And that's one of the, that's one of the reasons that the it's so important to be exploring now for the materials that we're going to need in the late 2020s and the 2030s, mm -hmm. because the work that we do today is going to produce metals more than five or even more than 10 years from now. Uh, so, so it's a, it's a, you know, complex, it's a complex process and Nothing I've said so far is is specific to cobalt. That's just how the industry works. Right. That's yeah. So so let's get into I guess how cobalt makes this entire ecosystem and sector a bit more I guess efficient and takes a little bit of the extra drilling out. It takes a little bit of the guessing game out to where you can be a bit more precise and efficient with I guess where you quote unquote bang that first stick in right. And then I guess before you do that, the idea would be that you have you know what community you're going in. You can kind of look at the environmental standards before. I, I guess the, there's so much time being saved. There's so much energy being saved um, and, and probably a ton of money being saved, <laughs> I guess, with this, this sort of approach. You, I think you, you, you nailed it there. So exploration, because exploration is such a challenging problem, when a typical, uh, if you look at a collection of, of exploration drill holes, most companies, if they drill 100 holes, they will make zero discoveries. Wow. And that means that there's a lot of money that is wasted on unsuccessful projects. Now, a good idea, but the probability of success is just too low. And if we're, if we're going to have enough raw materials to supply the batteries for a whole world full of electric vehicles, then collectively, we as an industry have to get better at finding the deposits that contain these critical materials. So our thesis is we have to use data much more effectively to increase our probability of making discoveries and develop better methods of finding the next wave of deposits that are more difficult to find. And a critical component of doing this is integrating many different types of data together and using quantitative statistical methods to estimate the probability of finding ore deposits in any given location. So Cobalt's technology is designed to guide our decisions about where and how to explore. What parts of the world should we be looking in? Where within those provinces are the places that are most likely to host the right kind of ore deposits? What kind of data should we be going out and collecting? Based on what we learn from that data, what's the next piece of data that we should go out and collect? Based on the rocks that we observe today, based on the signals that we collected today in our airborne geophysical survey, where should we go tomorrow? Where should the aircraft 
drop our geologist onto those rocks to, to go sample tomorrow based on what we observed yesterday? How should we change our plan based on what we learn? And then where should we, where should we drill the first hole in this prospect? Based on what we learned from this one, where should we drill the next one? And it's an entire system for integrating lots of data and applying a whole range of different analytical methods to guide each of the decisions that we make. Is this just, would this be just for uh, above surface land or could this, the technology be applied for the oceans as well? In principle, we could apply our technology to, to submarine exploration. We are not doing that as a company. And there's, there's really two, two distinct reasons. The first one is that the, the environmental impacts are, are, are challenging. Uh, it's, it's not impossible to do, to do subsea mining. And, but these are, these are ecosystems that we don't understand very well. And so we're, we're very cautious about that. The second reason is that the economics are challenging. And our, our belief is that we can find ore deposits on the continents that are going to be more economic to mine than what we can find in ocean resources. Yeah, and, and it, was a, it was a bad way to phrase the question because I, I look at it as like when you, when you create a, an amazing and new sort of technology, I look at the possibility of how others could sort of API it, right? Or sort of license it where they can use it for something that you don't. And, and the fact that when we keep saying exploration and the fact we don't know a ton about the ocean, right? Could somebody else, you know, license the technology or, or something and kind of go just use the data to look to even find out more about what's beneath the ocean? Because I, I guess they could could find something there, right? Almost just like as an exercise, not to actually mine anything, but just the exploration of like, hey, this technology is going to give us data from the ocean, maybe that we've never had before. And there might be stuff down there that we don't necessarily have to mine we could go get it other ways or something like that. Many, many aspects here. So one is th th there certainly is exploration in the oceans and it's primarily for, for oil and gas mm -hmm. and oil and gas is, exploration is very data rich as well. And the oil, the oil industry, because, um, because oil exploration has already moved to these much more difficult to find deposits. Yeah. yeah. And, it, exploration has become much more expensive. And so the data intensity has grown because if you're going to drill a single well that costs $100 million, then the investment in data collection is, mm -hmm. is really clearly valuable. Anything you can do to increase your success rate is going to, is going to be really good. In the minerals industry, we're drilling onshore, we're drilling shallow holes you know, a typical exploration drill hole is only a few hundred meters deep, and you're not drilling into hydrocarbon reservoirs. You're not. There isn't a risk of a gusher or a or a blowout in in almost all cases. There mm -hmm. there are some exceptions where there are hydrocarbon systems, but for the most part, you're drilling into solid rock, and it's much less expensive. It's you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to drill each hole, and that's one of the challenges in the industry is that because it's it can be inexpensive just to pop a hole into the ground where you have an idea. Mm -hmm. There's been much less investment in careful data collection and in careful integration and analysis of data in order to drive your exploration decisions. There, there have been innovations in, in exploration, to be sure. There, there are many new kinds of data that have been developed uh, starting really after the, after the Second World War with airborne geophysics, 
with uh, mass spectrometric techniques for geochemical assays. And that's continued through today. We now have really high resolution satellite imagery, mm -hmm. different spectral bands. There, there are ways of, of getting information about the earth like that. Uh, but there's so much more that we can do to integrate these different types of data together to form a better view and a, a probabilistic view of what's in the subsurface. And the, the minerals industry has, has some catching up to do in this regard compared to oil and gas. And do you foresee, and then, I mean, obviously they're kind of conflicting a little bit because you're, you're trying to mine products to put oil and gas sort of out of business, so to speak, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we kind of see the formation of EV. So mining for oil and gas will probably always be sort of necessary in some ways, but not probably as at scale and as a vicious, viciously sort of mined as it, as it was before, just because we don't have the demand for it as we once were, because the demand is going to be for you know, lithium and cobalt and all these other materials that you're speaking of. Um, that's, 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 I mean, that's a positive. That's right? absolutely right. Yeah, that's right. And you see a number of the major oil companies, I think it, I think it was BP's annual energy outlook forecasts that oil demand will start to decrease within the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And this is remarkable. This yeah, is it's crazy oil, to think about. International oil companies forecasting this and 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 communicating this to their shareholders and the public. And I think it, it's it's a great and necessary trend for the world. And this is this is one of the things that is is a really key distinction between powering a car with oil and gas with with petroleum mm -hmm. with gasoline and powering a car with electricity, particularly electricity derived from renewable sources. We still need raw materials. There's, there's still impact from mining to be sure. But when you have battery electric vehicle and you, you only have to mine the metals once, you don't use them up when you drive the car, which is so different from powering a car with oil. Once you burn a gallon of gasoline, it's gone. You have to put another gallon of gasoline into the engine in order to move the car the next 30 miles. And with a battery, it's not like that at all. You put a battery into the vehicle and you can charge the battery again and again and again, and you're not using up the cobalt and the nickel in the battery. And eventually the battery degrades and you have to replace the battery, but then you get to recycle it and you have to invest some energy and a tiny bit of additional materials in order to make a new battery, but the cobalt and the nickel, they stay in circulation. And so you can have a circular economy mm. if your batteries to store the energy and you're getting the energy from renewable sources. The challenge is that we can't have that circular economy yet because we don't have enough of the right materials in circulation. Mm -hmm. Eventually, recycling will be the primary source of the materials for making new EV batteries, but we don't have enough of those materials yet. And in order to get to that point, we have to produce them. So it's really interesting. We're not going to need, we're not going to need so much more new cobalt and nickel and lithium forever, we're going to need it for the next 20 or 30 years until we electrify the whole vehicle fleet. And then the incremental needs will not continue to grow in the same way. We're primarily going to rely on recycling. But in the, in wow. the next couple of decades, we have to get all these extra materials into circulation in order to build all these EVs. That's pretty incredible. So you would have to also have it's sort of easy to say recycling, right? But we still can't recycle like plastic very well at scale. So like how are there are there processes in place yet or that won't come till later until we have finally have enough of the materials where you could start the circular 
process of it where you have recycling moving just just as quickly as like manufacturing a car right or something could they still have that recycling like will will tesla and other ev companies actually have factories that recycle these batteries proficiently is that what you what you would see absolutely okay. the technology exists today the same companies who manufacture batteries can also gotcha. recycle batteries what we it's not the technology for recycling that's lacking it's mm quantity of materials to be recycled. So if you think about it, the main source of feedstock for recycling to make new batteries are old batteries, but there aren't very many EVs on the road yet. Right. Once there are a bunch of EVs on the road, well, then there are going to be eight-year-old EVs, nine-year-old EVs that are going to be ready to have their batteries recycled. But today we are selling and manufacturing many more electric vehicles than we did eight or nine years ago. And so we just don't have the feedstock yet. And that's that's what we expect. It's a good thing that EV sales and manufacturing are growing as rapidly as they are. And a few, you know, decade from now, all the EVs that, that were made this year, those batteries will be ready to be recycled into new ones. Interesting. That's really wild. I didn't I didn't know that you could you could have sort of the the circular processes with with the batteries because that I mean that's a game changer right I mean that trumps sort of every type of I guess transportation other transportation ways that <laughs> you can think of the electric is just superior right to to any type of any type of, of production of movement you know just for everything whether it's buses or scooters or bikes now is is huge I'm here in Amsterdam and electric bikes are sort of a huge thing over here. Um, I assume they use the same sort of sort of batteries. That's right. And what's important is having high quality batteries for whatever the application is. And I think e-bikes are fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, e-bikes e have very light batteries. You don't you don't need you don't need to store a whole lot of energy if all you have to do is move one passenger and a lightweight vehicle. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about moving a vehicle that weighs three or 4,000 pounds and is large enough to carry five or more passengers, then you need a much bigger battery. And having, uh, having smaller vehicles, it can be part of the solution as well. And that, that lessens the raw material requirements in order to meet everyone's transportation needs. The goal is not to have two or three billion electric vehicles. The goal is to meet the transportation needs right, of the population. Right. And whether that's vehicles, uh, personal vehicles or buses or bicycles or pedestrian cities, uh, you know, a combination of all of those things is required to meet the needs. I think for um, the, the choice of battery for a particular application, you know, depends on what it is that where, where you need to go and what you need to transport. And nickel and cobalt are so important for making high quality batteries. Uh, and particular, what I mean is high energy density batteries, fast charging batteries, long cycle life batteries. If you want a vehicle that has a range of hundreds of miles, you either have to put in a very, very large, very, very heavy battery, or you have to put in one that has a lot of nickel and or cobalt in it so that it has high energy density. And in a lot of the world, you really do need a vehicle with those performance characteristics in order to meet customer demand. There are parts of the world in, in the Chinese market, some of, the, some of the, the vehicle trips are lower. You don't necessarily have long commutes in the same way that you do in many parts of the US. And so 
you can put a you can put a smaller battery or you can use a lithium iron phosphate battery instead which has lower lower energy density and that meets the needs of the customer and and that's great but in in much of the world that's that's not the case and so the the right kind of raw materials are needed to have a battery that has the performance specification to ultimately get a customer to want to buy the electric vehicle. We're, we're still always going to need, you know, trains and 18 wheelers and, you know, barges and, and boats and all these bigger forms of, of transportation. Is it possible is the wrong word? Because I'm sure everything and anything is possible. I guess, is it possible to have an EV battery that powers like trains and barges? And how far is that away? Is that just, is, is it, it, it can't be here if we just had enough materials to do it. <laughs> the technology is already there to do it. We just need the actual materials. It's, it's less of a material limitation. And again, just about the design of the energy storage system for the application. And so, um, you know, trains and long haul trucks, you, know, you have to be able, you have to stop and charge. And so for a, for a personal vehicle, on most days, right. you might drive tens of miles, and then you can plug in at your home or your office. For for a longer trip, you'd like to be able to take your vehicle to go to a to go to another city or go on a road trip or something like that. But you can you can stop and charge. Um, trains, well, obviously there's a there's a reason that we have overhead wires on many train lines so that you have access to the source of, of power the whole way. Long haul trucking is is challenging in that regard because you want to keep the you want to keep the trucks moving and mm-hmm. you don't want to have to stop and charge and, and plan accordingly. So it it is possible you can you can put large batteries, but but it you know it, it might not always meet the needs depending upon the route. You know, fleet vehicles in cities may be better applications. Barges are even harder. There are yeah. <laughs> there are there aren't charging stations in the mid ocean. And, uh, and except the sun, right? You'd have to find a way to power it by solar or something. Right. Yeah, but you think about the size of the solar array you need yeah, to keep it. It's very challenging. So <laughs> marine transportation is is harder, and and it's you know today most ships burn burn bunkers, which is the you know the sort of lower lower grades of of petroleum that come out of the refinery, which have even a you know, a higher, higher carbon emissions per unit energy that they burn. It's, it's less good than gasoline, um, still not as bad as coal, um, but it's, it, it also has a lot of impurities and, and whatnot. It's, you know, it's a dirty fuel and um, yeah. it's the primary fuel of, of the shipping industry for, um, for clear kind of performance and, and economic reasons. And so that, that is a harder challenge to be sure. It's not impossible, but it's transitioning marine transport to low carbon fuels is is a is a is a harder horizon to surmount and i think when we talk about all the challenges with electrifying the light duty vehicle fleet and going and finding the raw materials like cobalt is doing that's one of the easier problems that right. we can among the things that we need to so <laughs> it you know it really just puts it into perspective how long are we away before cobalt metals and other companies in the space like actually get to their desired place or are we still five years ten years away from it actually you know breeding sort of like results and actually having having the technology work as it as it should so we've we've made incredible strides and already, you know, Cobalt is Cobalt is a young company. Yeah. We we've been around for for only a little more than two years now. And already, we are using our technology to guide the exploration decisions that we make. We 
our, our, our view of the subsurface at the projects that we work on is different because of the machine learning models that we have applied to try to characterize the subsurface. And we're, we're taking we're taking all of the all of the geoscientific data from those regions. We're looking at it in different ways, and we're comparing a model that we build purely statistically from a model that a geoscientist builds uh, by by applying their interpretation of the rocks that they see. And we look at them side by side, and we try to understand the differences, and we try to understand we try to under we try to build ensembles of models so that we know that we can't perfectly characterize what's in the subsurface but we need to understand the uncertainty in our in our prediction we need to quantify the uncertainty in our prediction and the goal of our exploration program is to go collect data to reduce that uncertainty and so we are we are doing that already we are using our understanding of the uncertainty to design our data collection programs and go out and, and go out and collect more samples to go collect geophysical surveys to constrain our interpretation of of the rocks under the surface so it is the the approach is the approach is working uh, it's it's already very powerful it's already facilitating ways of interacting with data more systematically more statistically and faster than the methods that were available to to geoscientists and data scientists before we started working on this program. They have so, to be thrilled, huh? To... Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, because it, you you can ask and answer questions more rapidly by having a data system that stores all of the different types of data and allows you to programmatically um, to programmatically access all of that data. So uh, so it's it's really powerful. We're getting the the first we're getting the first applications of that in real projects this year, and so it is still as I said we're still a we're still a young company. It's still early days, but what we've seen so far is very promising. Ultimately, you know, how will you measure our performance? It's based on how many ore deposits we discover and how how can we demonstrate over over a number of years that we've actually improved exploration success rates and and most of that is ahead of us but i'm but everything that we've done so far gives me confidence that the approach is 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 and will be very very powerful two two quick questions um then a final question one would be what's this sort of business model who are your customers is it governments is it companies or you sell direct to manufacturers like what's sort of the the business model yeah, thank you for the question. It's it's really it's it's important to clarify and and because this is this distinguishes Cobalt from other companies. We are an exploration company, and what that means is that we actually go own the exploration licenses. We either, we either uh, partner with another company or we go acquire the exploration license ourselves. And then we conduct exploration programs. Our geologists go walk the ground. We commission airborne geophysical surveys. We drill holes and make discoveries. Eventually, we'll either need to build mines ourselves or sell a majority interest to another party who becomes a mining company. And so the product that we sell is either we sell nickel or cobalt or copper from a mine, mm -hmm. or we sell the ore deposit in the ground to another company who wants to build a mine there. And so that's a commodity business. There's there's mm -hmm. no you know, there's no customer adoption risk. Everyone you, know, you can you can but those are global commodity markets. And um, what we are not is a company that sells software. We develop software but we use it for our own purposes to guide our exploration program. 
and we don't we're not licensing it to anyone else and we are not providing services to another company and we've set the company up that way for three reasons the first one is that we can capture more value that way in the natural resources business the value from making a discovery and developing reserves, that value accrues to the company who owns the asset and who invests their capital into the asset over many years. There's no day in which you go from not knowing anything about the subsurface to having a deposit that's <laughs> worth a billion dollars. Yeah. You, you, as you, as you learn more about the subsurface and you characterize the ore body, you create more and more value over time. And you can see this, there are, there are companies who own one asset that is, who, that is, not, yet, that is not yet in development or in, in, not yet in production. It's not being mined, they're just doing exploration, but they're publicly traded and you can see their value. Uh, there are also assets that are sold all the time yeah. well, before the, well before a mine is built. So you have to invest lots of capital over time and then that is our business model is we make investments in projects and that's the best way to create value from our, to, to capture the value that we create from our technology. The second, um, the second reason is that we work extensively with partners and that's other, other companies in the mining industry who have data that we can work with, with our technology systems and integrate with other data that we have. And our business model aligns our incentives with our partners because we are investing our own capital behind our models and we are investing our own capital alongside the other companies that we partner with. And the third reason that that's our business model is because it's really a central tenet of the company is that to be really effective at making software that guides exploration decisions, we have to be a company that's making exploration decisions. And that's really what the technology is about. We are, we're using it to guide each decision that we make along the way to making discoveries and developing these ore deposits with the critical materials for electric vehicles. So I have one more question and then a final question. It would be around, I mean, you have some amazing investors, right? Some obviously some really forward-thinking people who invest really long-term, right? Mm -hmm. How is it sort of, raising money and, and sort of pitching this idea was it uh ha have you raised money before what kind of what was this process like because it's always a uh it's always a crazy dynamic trying to go raise money for an incredible idea where you know it might take decades for it to you know really come to fruition it's a great question and it's an interesting contrast even between three years ago and today yeah it's a great point yeah it is it was the case, actually, there was a lot of interest in, in Kobold, even in the very early days before, you know, before we had even a proof of concept of our, of our technology. And we had, uh, we, we had a lot of interest in the company from different sectors, in, including people in the automotive value chain, the battery value chain, and from financial investors, uh, you know, Silicon Valley venture capital funds like, um, like Andreessen Horowitz, who ultimately co-led our Series A. And you know, the real question essentially, and that a lot of the financial investors asked, was if your technology is great, why don't you sell software? Sandhill Road yeah. investors. <laughs> Sandhill Road investors are used to investing in, in companies that sell software. And 
in fact, uh, we, as I described to you, our business model is to develop software that, that is core competitive advantage, but the way that we monetize it is by using it for our own purposes to guide our own exploration program. And once, in, once investors really came on to our thinking on that, they became very excited and, and you can see the results of that. Today, actually, everything related to energy transition is obviously a, a theme that's getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Everything related to electric vehicles and the battery and, and the battery value chain, it's a it's a mega trend and it's a it's a multi-decade trend. And so a lot of people are looking for opportunities to invest behind it. And in the exploration space, and you know, we're at the, the far upper, the, the far front end of the value chain. I think. What we're doing is really different from what other companies are doing. You know, we, we partner with major mining companies and, and smaller mining companies. We, we, we see them as partners, not as competitors. And our business model is really pretty different than what other companies in the space are doing because we're investing significant amounts of our own capital in exploration. And so it's a, it's a really terrific position to be in. And I can just say there's a, there's a lot of excitement right now in the investor community around things related to energy transition, EVs and batteries. And it's a, it's a really privileged position to be a part of that. So last question I'll end with here is, is just about the future and what you're excited about, what you're optimistic about. It's been interesting to see just the, the transition of where business and sort of moving at a fast pace has kind of, it has contributed to sort of climate change and sort of the degradation of uh, of our environment but now it's it's sort of exciting to be at a time where business can solve these problems so what are sort of the next three to five years you know look like from cobalt and, and your vision and, and and what are you optimistic about I'm optimistic about a lot grant if I look at if I look at our market outlook on EVs from just two or three years ago the world is ahead of plan on EV development. You look at the UK, for example, which as of early 2018, they were planning to phase out internal combustion engines by 2040. And the Johnson government pulled that forward to 2035 and then again to 2030. And this is a trend that we see happening elsewhere as well. And when we were when we were putting putting Cobalt together, there were new announcements every week about automakers putting together new production plans and model launches and setting really ambitious targets for how many EV models they were going to make and how many vehicles they were going to sell. And the same thing has been happening again this year. The automakers are redoubling their own plans and committing even even more than they had previously. And so the pace is accelerating and you know, not, not to the point of inevitability. And so we have a responsibility to go actually have the raw materials to, to meet these plans and to do so in a responsible way. And that's a, that's a really big challenge, but I'm optimistic that the, the system is becoming self-reinforcing now. And between public policy, business decisions of, of the automakers and the rest of the supply chain, and then public who both support the policies and who are the consumers of the vehicles are excited about EVs and able to choose from many models, able to get an electric vehicle from their favorite manufacturer. It's a, it's a great situation. And we talked about electrifying personal transportation is only one of the many things we need to do to avoid really significant global temperature rise, but it's one that we're on track to actually succeed in doing. And I feel great about that. On the technology front, I'm just amazed at 
what my colleagues at Cobalt have been able to do in a really short period of time. Pace of, of technology development has so exceeded my expectations. And we have some just amazing people with great ideas and a greater and greater set of tools to work with. And so I'm really optimistic that we're actually going to be able to meet this challenge and that we are going to be able to find the resources that we need to make all these electric vehicles. Amazing, my man. Well, thanks so much, Josh. It was an amazing conversation for me to learn. I hope the listeners can can learn from it like I do. It's it's not every day you, you talk about uh, technology with exploration of, of materials to to power the the ev infrastructure for you know the next hundred years you know so it's uh exciting to talk about it and i appreciate your time it's a real pleasure to be here thank you so much for having me grant